Gulf Coast is no stranger to disasters. Of the ten costliest natural disasters in U.S. history, eight are hurricanes and six predominantly impacted states alongside the Gulf of Mexico. Here in Houston, a litany of flood events have defined the city in recent years. Hurricane Allison in 2001, Hurricane Ike in, 20, in 2008, which has given rise to the popularly named Ike Dyke disaster mitigation proposal, and a series of recent floods, the Memorial Day floods of 2015, the Tax Day floods of 2016, and most prominently, Hurricane Harvey in 2017, that have put the city's vulnerability to excessive rainfall into sharp relief. And of course, as the climate changes, disasters may look different around the world, but there is no mistaking the rise in uncontrolled wildfires, severe droughts, heat waves, and stronger hurricanes and severe rainfall events. Weather disasters have become five times more common thanks to climate change, and there is no reason to think that things will slow down. In the wake of such disasters, though, how do we rebuild? What does recovery mean or even look like after catastrophe? The ways in which we choose to stay, relocate, or try to climate-proof our homes are shaping our cities and towns, and as more disasters strike, will only grow in importance to how we live amidst a changing world. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Do you have a story or question about recovering from disasters? Give us a call at 713-526-5738, extension 2. At 713-526-5738, extension 2. Today on Gulfstreams, we're speaking with three sociologists from Rice University, all of whom have recently put out books or articles that help us to understand the ways communities recover. Dean Rachel Kimbrough is the author of In Too Deep, Class and Mothering in a Flooded Community. Dr. Anna Rhodes is, with Max Bespris, the co-author of Soaking the Middle Class, Suburban Inequality and Disaster Recovery. And Dr. James Elliott is the author of several widely cited articles on disaster recovery, especially focusing on racial and wealth inequalities and disaster recovery. Uh, professors, welcome. Thanks Thank for having us. <laughs> so I'd like to start first just by hearing a little of what drew you into this work. So um, I, I believe that uh, Dean Kimbrough, Dr. Rhodes, I, I know both of you started working on this following Hurricane Harvey, which of course impacted you directly as Houstonians. Um, and Dr. Elliott, your work goes back all the way to Hurricane Katrina, though. So I, I think you've, you have a bit of a, a more lead on this. And I'm really curious, you know, beyond the immediate impacts on yourselves, what first drew you into really wanting to think about how we recover from these calamities? So I've always been interested in how people make decisions about where to live, where to raise their families, and, and what that looks like, and all the factors that go into those choices. And I think in the context of climate change and increasing disasters, that will more and more be a factor that people are taking into account in those decisions. And more and more people are going to face those choices in the wake of disaster, having to decide whether to return to a flooded home, having to decide where to go if they choose to leave one. Um, so that was what drew me into trying to understand recovery in the wake of, of Hurricane Harvey, thinking about how people were navigating those choices. I would say that my interest in urban inequality and the environment stems back to early graduate school days. And what struck me as odd back then is that it wasn't really a, an area that people were thinking too much about, mm -hmm. let alone training. So it took me some time 
took different routes. And then it was really during that first job at, uh, at Tulane University in New Orleans where my wife worked as a, a, a healthcare worker in the city. And it was her time to sort of be in the hospital as a sort of essential personnel uh, during Katrina. And so I volunteered and we went in and we, we went through the storm in the city uh, firsthand and rode that out. So that made a real personal impact. And at the time, I had just gotten tenure. So it was an opportunity to sort of rethink those connections. I've been trying to do that ever since. For me, I think my work has always been about families and neighborhoods. And I happen to live next door, essentially, to a neighborhood in Houston, southwest Houston, along Bray's Bayou, that flooded for the third time in three years during Hurricane Harvey. And I just could not imagine what that was doing to the families in that neighborhood. And I knew some of them through my kids' school, and so I wanted to really dig in and find out what the impact of experiencing something like that really was on a family. And I think something that really runs across all of your work is that these impacts aren't the same, right? Um, Really across certainly class, which I think we would expect there to be different responses to, but especially race, even gender in your work, uh, Dean Kimbrough. I I mean, it's really kind of staggering to think about some of these different responses. And so maybe just to start us off, I'm wondering about, can you give us the the, the overhead view of, of what is the difference? How are we seeing, you know, we think of recovery of a city how does it wind up that we have such unequal, and in what ways that you're looking at? Because you're all looking at very different ways that people are also grasping with these recovery processes. If you can just walk us through that a little. So one of the most fun things about working on this project actually was getting to talk to Anna and Max about their work as they were developing their their book as well, because we were seeing different things. We Mm. were looking in different types of communities. The neighborhood I was focused on is a highly educated, definitely upper middle class, affluent community. And what was really striking was how much support they had immediately following the flood in terms of recovery. Um, They also had financial resources they could draw on, as well as extensive social networks that really came out of the woodwork to help them um, get things cleaned up and fixed. That did wane um, a few weeks after the storm to some degree. um, And the recovery process was very, very long. But the families in my book mostly had the resources they needed to recover in flood insurance, importantly. So I think for our book, thinking about suburban communities, we were also in a majority white, sort of middle, upper middle class community. And I think what struck me over two years of talking to families in that community is that we know, and Dr. Elliot can speak to, um, differences between communities and growing inequality between communities in the wake of disaster But I think we often have assumed that uh, sort of more affluent majority white spaces are almost like a best case scenario community in terms of access to resources, as Rachel was saying. Um, But we saw over time in this community that inequality grew within the community. So we are missing something around how we're addressing needs in recovery, not only um, in our poorest communities, but sort of across the spectrum. And we're going to see increasing inequality even in those places that we often think of as receiving the most assistance in the wake of disaster. So it was just highlighting that this is an ongoing policy challenge that we're going to need to address head on um, because we aren't quite getting it right anywhere at this Mm. point. 
And I would just add to that that these types of questions are relatively new. Uh, after Katrina, I was really interested in what was going to happen next uh, and impatiently wanted to look out 5, 10, 15 years later. And when I went and looked at the existing literature on this, uh, I found that most of the attention was paid in the first two or three weeks of the disaster. Mm. The questions were, okay, how do people come together or not during these events? What should interventions look like in terms of emergency response? And the bigger questions of, of what happens going forward weren't really at the fore of this. So the types of research that uh, Dr. Rhodes and Dr. Kimmerer were talking about is the new generation of this sort of research. And a pivotal question is not just in the case of Katrina and Harvey and other disasters of whether or not these events pull back the veil of everyday life to mm. reveal pre-existing inequalities, but now the question is, do they actually begin to contribute to and exacerbate these inequalities going forward in the ways that, that we sort of come in long term after the reporters have gone and the hard work of recovering over the long term sort of proceeds. Oh, and I really want to, you know, thank you for drawing our attention to something that you, I think you're already touching on, which is just how long these processes are. I mean, I know in your work, you've been looking at communities for years. I also work on disaster recovery and kind of take a, a long longitudinal study and find, you know, okay, this is yeah, there's there's when the reporters leave. There's when the the kind of prominent tourist zones of a place are back up and running. But at a neighborhood level, you know, yes, this is years and years. We can look at Louisiana post Ida, and we can see communities in you know kind of western Louisiana that are still recovering years on. Um, and so, I mean, I think some of that I would just love to hear about your experience of the scale of time that it takes for recovery, but also how that's not equally distributed. Because I know. Some folks, and particularly Dr. Rhodes and Dean Kimbrough, your books really explore. Some people are able to move back and, and kind of, you know, proof their homes for these events, and some aren't. <laughs> um, and then I think uh, Dr. Elliot will talk a lot about, you know, where people wind up moving to. But, yes, if you can walk us through some of what does this process of recovery actually look like, and what are things that we're missing when we, when we just kind of take the headlines? So when I started my project, I initially thought that I would interview mothers um, once and mm. kind of get their in-depth storm stories. And then as I began talking to them and absorbing everything they were going through and realizing just how long it was going to take them to get back in their homes, which was their number one goal, um, I realized that I really needed to talk to them again. And so I interviewed everybody again a year later. And if I hadn't done that, I would have missed so much of the storm story. At the beginning, the first interviews everybody was really focused on money and you know insurance and how they were going to pay to elevate their home for example and i wasn't expecting that and then in the second interview everybody was very focused on family conflict particularly with their husbands mm -hmm. and that that had just accumulated over the course of the year a very very trying year for the family and so i heard a whole lot about that and i think it just illustrates the longevity of this something you go through something like this and it's it's not over even when you move back into your renovated home it's still not over you're still trying to figure out how to pay for things and very concerned about the future as well of course well maybe we can take a moment here because i think when we think of recovery 
we, you know, sadly expect there to be differences probably along class lines, probably along racial lines. But I think that, you know, it's really fascinating to think of your book, In Too Deep, which focuses on motherhood, but also just on a kind of feminist read of disaster recovery, and really is attentive to the fact that within families, distribution of how we're recovering, what that labor looks like is unequal. Can you talk a little about that for a moment? Sure. Um I thought it was interesting, although definitely in line with other sociological research, that the wives definitely espoused non-traditional gender views in the sense that um, they thought, you know, men and women can contribute equally to the household. But when push came to shove and they had to get their house back in order, um, the women took on by far the most work. So Mm -hmm. they were meeting the contractor. They were going by the house to pick up mail. They were making decisions about the design and all of that. And when I asked them if that had been negotiated with their husbands or just assumed, they kind of looked at me like, well, of course I would do it because I'm the logistics person, as as one of them told me. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was the central source of the conflict between the couples. The wives were really, most of them worked full-time outside the home, so they felt like they were working three full-time jobs to get the house back. Um, And that caused lasting um, issues, for sure. And so then broadening out, something that I want to go back to is you did hint, hint at the uh, the issues of insurance. <laughs> and I know this is something we, we thought a lot about, and especially communities that have recently gone through Harvey, probably very familiar now. But there are these constant recurring stories of not realizing we needed flood insurance, not understanding what flood insurance means and how it's different from owners and insurance. And so maybe, Dr. Rhodes, can you walk us through a little bit some of your work on just hearing from these families the way that they're thinking through insurance and the realizations and the inequity that that winds up kind of contributing to? Yeah, so we talked to 59 households, and there were a large number of them who were not insured um, when Harvey hit. And some of that was people who were aware and didn't have the financial resources to pay for insurance. So they sort of let it lapse, hoping they would be able to pay that bill at some point. Um, Others got bad advice and they were in, say, the 500-year floodplain and weren't necessarily mandated to have that coverage and had a real estate agent or a friend or someone they trusted say, oh, you're unlikely to flood and then not opt in to, um, to that insurance and really deeply regret it. And when Harvey hit and they were facing that challenge, to, to rebuild their property in the absence of those insurance dollars. And that was a major driver of the speed um, and completeness with which people were able to put their properties back together. So we saw that those who were insured, sometimes it took a little while longer for them to actually get a significant number of dollars. Mm-hmm. The sort of FEMA aid would appear relatively quickly for households. So sometimes it was the uninsured who sort of jump-started the process, Mm. but those dollars didn't last very long. So folks were often unable to put their full property back together. They might have one working bathroom, but not another. Um, They might have a couple of rooms, but some rooms with no drywall still. Um, We talked to one uh, household that just never was able to put flooring back in, so they were older folks living in a home with cement floors, which Mm. they talked about as being sort of a health hazard for them and the risk of falling. Mm -hmm. One of them had fallen. So they were negotiating that. And in the absence of the insurance money, they simply ran out of funds. Um, So we see that that becomes a major factor in driving how that recovery process unfolds over time and the speed with which people are able to sort of get their properties put fully back together. And that was one major change that we saw in the wake of the storm. So a lot of folks 
didn't choose to move. They chose to return and rebuild and stay in their homes, but they got insurance if they didn't have it. Mm. And that was the sort of transition that folks were making to try and be prepared for the next storm. And if I can just hop in there, you know, the insurance issue gets back to the earlier question of how long is the recovery Mm -hmm. and does it ever end? And and we see this in discussions even of the COVID-19 pandemic. Is it over? Is it not? But the insurance signals and operation is really stretching this out to the extent that people will talk about insurance and its complexity and its increasing cost as being scarier than the next storm, Mm. right? So that there's an uncertainty of how much you should get, whether it'll be available, and what type you should get, as as Dr. Rose was talking about. I mean, think about here and along the Gulf, you've got homeowner's insurance, which protects you from certain wind coverages Mm -hmm. and rain coming in through, you know, a compromised roof. window breaks or something, Yeah, yeah. Exactly, but that's not flood insurance. But, so then you get flood insurance, so both of those rates are going up. Um, and so the federal flood insurance program, we already know, is increasing over time. So there are many more people who are not in the situation that Dr. Rhodes mentioned in her community where they're simply not able to afford the insurance and are basically going what they call bare and waiting for the next disaster uh, and have it make the decision for them. And wow. so this is the world where we're increasingly entering. And I feel like, you know, speaking to Katrina and in your experience in New Orleans, you know, I, I grew up in New Orleans. I lived through this. And I mean, this was all of us kind of recognizing overnight, oh, what does homeowner's insurance not cover? You know, there were countless stories about people realizing the necessity of flood insurance in that kind of catastrophe, not being able to. And now we see it here with Harvey. Uh, and so I'm wondering, is this just a lesson we have to continually learn <laughs> in this really, really painful way? Or are there ways that we should be thinking about how we address both the the insurance market more broadly, which is already under a lot of strain. We see quite a few states where insurers are pulling out, insurance rates are skyrocketing because of disasters. Is this the time to think seriously about how we're handling insurance and catastrophes, maybe nationally, (laughs) certainly regionally? Uh, Absolutely. And not because we need to do that as residents and citizens and homeowners uh, and renters, but because the insurance companies are already doing this mm. and the people who insure the insurance companies, the reinsurance market is already doing this. So it's a fundamental shift. I mean, this is why FEMA has already begun to adjust upward uh, the cost of its flood insurance because basically it is an institution that's going bankrupt and it can no longer mm. afford to subsidize the coverages in the same way. So we have an increasing need uh, from a growing number of folks uh, for this type of insurance, and yet the access to that is going down through increasing prices. So that begins to introduce other ways to, to intervene that we might get into. One of them is sort of moving that recovery process out so it re- includes uh, things like mitigation or actually paying people to remove themselves from harm's way and make decisions about what that does in terms of you know, saved equity and uh, community attachments and the like. And so can you say more about mitigation? Because I think this is something that runs throughout is really what are people doing when they when they receive those funds? We've talked a little bit about, you know, receiving them. I, I think we should also flag that across your work, there's a real attention to uh, the different levels of resources that enable people to really go for these, uh, you know, different pockets of money. But I mean, I mean that in a very real way of we see folks who have the time at home to really be competitive and put together every piece of paper and go through every detail are able to to get a lot more out of the system than those who are 
trying to work 40 or 50 hours a week, maybe stay-at-home parents, you know, these folks who, who don't have that luxury of time and resource are, are being disproportionately impacted and not accessing perhaps what they're deserving of. Um, and so what does that mean both in terms of, I guess that, that's a twofold question of one, if you want to say more about what that process of actually getting the money looks like, but then where is it going um, and how are people mitigating afterwards? So um, in my book, the mothers, indeed, this was part of the gendered labor they were doing. Mm. They were, you know, documenting photos. They were finding receipts. They were, they had extensive Excel spreadsheets that they shared with me, which, I mean, must have just taken them hours and hours and hours to put together. And then they were also haggling with the insurance companies as well, back and forth, back and forth. No, this was this kind of tile, not that kind of tile, you know. It was an immense amount um, of labor, but as you say while it was very challenging for them and they were doing lots of other things at the same time, they got it done and they got their money eventually from the insurance companies. Um, In terms of mitigation, many of them ended up raising their homes, which Mm -hmm. cost kind of a minimum of $250,000. They paid for that from a variety of ways, including small business administration loans to make that happen. But Remember, in this case, that's the third time in three years. Some of the women in, in my book, seven of them, this was the third flood in three years. And for many of them, it was the second flood. Um, I do think it raises tough questions about how many times we're going to rebuild homes in that particular neighborhood and others in Houston that repetitively flood and what it means to continue investing in a community that is so at risk. And it's a really tough question. The book tries to grapple with it. I'm not sure it comes to any great conclusions there it's tough <laughs> it is it's it's a, yeah I, I if you if you had the answer i would i would almost be concerned because <laughs> um, <laughs> i don't think there is a single answer um but yeah no that's i think that both highlights something that runs across these uh, these bodies of work that you've come up with around yes that that demand of time and how i think something that both dr rhodes and dean kimbrough your work really speaks to is Actually, it's really important that we look at some of these upper class, upper middle class communities to understand they're actually getting the resources. Why are they able to get the resources? You say a small business administration loan, and I'm sitting here going, I would never have ever thought to even apply for one of these. And the kind of networks that enable money to go to certain pockets of communities, and we know don't go to other ones. Um, And so I think that's a really significant point about how this money is able to flow. Um, So yeah, in terms of mitigation, in terms of how people are recovering. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to talk about what did perhaps just like, just to focus on Harvey and say, how did people recover from Harvey? What were the different options and what did people do? So compared to the community Dean Kimbrough was studying, we actually didn't see a lot of people raise their homes or mm. take major sort of mitigation steps with their properties. And that was largely driven by the cost. Mm-hmm. They simply couldn't afford to do it. Um, there was only one home in one of the sort of neighborhoods at right at the entrance to the neighborhood. And everyone I talked to was like, have you seen the house? They lifted it like eight feet. Um, but it was this very notable sort of standout property because that was not something that people could really afford to do. There are some instances where you can't return to your property without mitigating if your risk is high enough. And so there that's going to become potentially sort of a policy consideration down the line as risk increases. Um, But the expense is a real issue for mitigation efforts. Mm -hmm. And the Small Business Administration loans can allow people to get back in their properties. The problem is, in some respects, that you can have two neighbors, and we did, next door to each other, one with insurance that was able to rebuild, 
one that took out a small business administration loan to rebuild. And their properties look really similar, but one family is now over $150,000 in debt. And you can't tell from the outside of these beautiful homes that that's true. Mm. But they're worried about the financial ramifications of that new loan for saving for their kid's college. They have a $400 new monthly expense that they have to pay down starting a year after that loan was first issued. And so it can really change the sort of financial security and dynamics of households. So yes, in theory, you have access to something that helps you put your property back. But in practice, it can introduce sort of new uh, financial inequalities within a community and new financial challenges for households that last for a very long time. Um, so I think there's some caution to think we can sort of insure our way or SBA loan our way out of the broader challenges that we're facing. And so we're going to need a combination of policies and practices that are not just at the level of the homeowner, right, but thinking about broader strategies around mitigation that um, – will will move beyond that sort of individual household level. And, sorry. And as, you know, individual households and families make these important decisions, right? They're doing it amidst this collective trauma that's been mentioned, right? So they're they're working through other issues, but as you go further and further down the recovery line, what the data suggests is that those have community effects, right? So mm. if you are able to get an SBA loan and rebuild or elevate and improve. Oftentimes what that does is it improves the value of the homes in that community, and that begins to generate more equity and uh, more returns on wealth, whereas communities where the majority of homeowners cannot sort of engage in those types of mitigation strategies, you see a downward trajectory. So one of the things we've been interested in nationally is seeing are there general trends that we can peel out across the country you know, across different scales of, of disaster. And what the data show is that's precisely what's happening. On average, uh, the wealth inequalities in this country by race, but also by homeowner, renter status, by education, get exacerbated the more uh, disasters damage the areas because you mm -hmm. have people who can rebuild, they begin to rebuild the community, the community itself goes up, or vice versa, it goes in a downward trajectory, which then sort of puts a, an onus, if you will, on federal interventions and state interventions. And so when we looked at that, what we found is that the more federal money that goes into uh, a general area that's been impacted by disaster, the worse that polarization actually gets. There's something about the way we've recovered through market mechanisms that privileges property over community, mm. and it just drives this forward. So if you put more money into that system, it just keeps doing more of the same faster. I think that's really significant as well, because one of the things that you all address is the role of social ties in really how communities rebuild and how important that community actually is to that recovery process. Um, and so, you know, I think certainly we, we do see examples in all of your work where people relocate and, and move to somewhere else. Um, but at the same time, we, we see a lot of people who are able to just move in, and particularly with Harvey, a lot of folks who really did immediately come back in comparison to, say, Hurricane Katrina, where you have a huge exodus of population. I'm also thinking of kind of California wildfires, where there's really nothing to come back to. Those social ties become so fractured that community recovery is really, really under strain. Can you talk some about what is that role of community, how important are these social ties, but then how that can contribute to some of these things that we're talking about. So I should say at the outset that um, I'm fond of economists. Some of my best <laughs> friends are economists. 
However, <laughs> when I was working on my book, um, I was talking to an economist and he said, um, well, obviously they need to just sell at a loss and get out of there. Mm. And I thought to myself, maybe on paper, yes, but I knew that that was not what they were going to do. Um, and in this case, the book makes the argument that these mothers and families had chosen this neighborhood very specifically for its school, its location, and it was a they, they thought it was a you know quote nice family neighborhood, and they were not going to give that up just because of these floods. Um, they thought they had found one of the best places in the city to raise their kids, and that was really important to them, and they were going to stay. And that's in fact what they told me. I think we found sort of similar things talking to folks as well. And one thing that stood out was that in the aftermath of a flood, in the absence of having already thought about where you might move or having sort of a viable alternative or a sense of a community that you could move to that might offer you the similar kinds of things that are important to you, it's really hard to make the decision to say, okay, we're going to pick up and sell it a loss and move, right? Um, and so there is this challenge when people have the resources to be very intentional about deciding where to live. Um, the storm doesn't change those things, right? The storm changes how your property looks and what you have to do to rebuild and return, but it doesn't necessarily remove those ties. It doesn't change the school your child would attend. Um, and so I think in that context, in the absence of people having some capacity and assistance to think through like, where else could I go where I might be able to also have similar things that were really important to me, it's going to be really hard for people to make that decision to leave all of that behind um, in a quick timeline. And that's where we're getting into that fundamental reality that homes don't just have economic value, right? Mm -hmm. They have powerful social value. And those values come from ties and commitments. One of the interesting things we found recently as we're studying FEMA's buyout program, this is the program where uh, repetitive flood, uh, flooded homeowners can, if approved, uh, sell their properties and get out of harm's way, right? And what we found through a national study of thousands of these folks that we tracked down is even when they do decide the move, that, that power of community and social value is strong. The average person who takes FEMA up or a local flood jurisdiction up on this policy moves an average of about six miles driving mm. distance. So they're still able to go to the same restaurants, to the same schools, to the same sort of routines. What they've done is effectively just try to move to a safer spot. This gets away from this notion of this apocalyptic uh, climate migration where people are suddenly, you know, moving long linear distances up to, you know, climate-proof Duluth. What they're doing is they're moving around and trying to find ways to maintain those ties and reduce risk. And if they can't do both or they can't afford it, then oftentimes they do stay in place and, and, and do what they can to mitigate or, um, you know, think about alternative plans when the next storm comes. So I absolutely hear that. And I'm as someone who's lived on the Gulf Coast my whole life. I'm very sympathetic to that. I, I will, I will throw out the, the, the challenging question of, is that sufficient in places that we know, thinking specifically of, you know, coastal Louisiana here that is literally melting away, right? Is, is six miles enough? Or is this just buying 
a decade? Is this buying two decades? Uh, these, these are really hard questions to grapple with, right? But there is a reason people are talking about real migration as a solution to some of these scenarios where we know we're going to continue to see disasters. And I'm, I'm curious what your, what your feeling is on that. Are there, are there strategies we should be looking at that are not just moving people, or is this something we're going to have to absolutely consider for places? <laughs> right. I thought you were just going to ask a simple question. Sorry. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that one. Yeah, uh, I am talking with three PhDs, so right. I felt like I could give you one, uh, right. one challenging one. <laughs> you know, I'll say what folks probably already know intuitively, which is the solutions are going to have to be varied. Right. Mm. We're going to have to have a mix of tools in the toolkit and work with communities so that those involved actually have a say in what's happening. Mm. At the same time, there's certain economic parameters. Um, so you might have a high social value of your house down on coastal Louisiana, but the, um, the latest research shows that banks are increasingly not going to lend uh, mm-hmm. for those because be, they become basically economically insolvent if the person forecloses or has to leave in a storm. And so those pressures are going to begin to be, I think, the, the wedge that sort of drives some of these questions home in certain places. And so the question is, can we be proactive ahead of schedule? So one of the things that I think is promising is that FEMA is engaging in these new policy tools known as CEDARS or Community Disaster Resilience Zones, mm. where they're identifying areas that uh, might be a little lower on sort of social resources and economic resources, but are high environmental risk, and working with those communities proactively by channeling real resources into there uh, and, and having them be able to make decisions uh, over three, five-year span, but really including those folks in the decision-making and in the planning. So maybe it's a little bit of managed retreat, as they call it, from certain areas that are more flood-prone, but uh, you know, efforts to build affordable housing in other parts of the community where they can maintain those ties. I think that's right. And I think there's, um, like we saw in, in our work, that the people who were um, – willing to move, the ones who made those moves were the ones who had thought about it ahead of time. So Mm. if we can start those conversations in communities of extremely high risk and engage them in how to think through what mobility away from from that risk might look like, I I think we can land on something um, that's a a workable solution that does move people out of harm's way. Um, But it has, we have to take the long view about that as opposed to like a reactive, responsive view um, because people are going to really push back if they feel like they're being forced to make decisions that um, they don't have any um, role in participation in. I think the other thing that comes up a little bit in some of the, like the current structure right now is, is buyouts, but the timeline that people have to wait to find out if they can even get those resources is incredibly long. Mm. So we talked to a few people who were sort of open to that kind of mobility but in the end, they, they didn't have the financial capacity to sort of wait, hold out and sort of wait. They needed somewhere to live in the meantime. Um, and so we have a challenge with our existing policies, I think, in some respects, in how we're creating opportunities for people to choose to move mm-hmm. who might be more open to it. And if, if that was easier and we were engaging high-risk communities with conversations about where they might go, where you might be similarly able to access the kinds of schools and neighborhood contexts that you wanted, I think we might see people more open to mobility in some communities at least um, than it seems like on paper right now. I agree, and I think 
one of the things that might have worked in the community I was studying, might have, is the thing the mothers were really stuck on was they had moved to this particular neighborhood for the particular school in the neighborhood. Mm. Well, why couldn't HISD have grandfathered their kids into that school so they could have moved somewhere else and still gone to that school? That could have gotten some more people to move, I think. Um, So uh, it's important to to understand, uh, our policymakers need to understand that why people choose to live where they live and why they think about moving and not just think that it's just numbers on a spreadsheet. It's not. It's it's people, it's community, and it's those social ties that we were talking about. I think that's so valuable. And thank you, because I, I think focusing on these community-led responses, really engaging, not thinking so much necessarily federal down, right, but really allowing communities to have voice in these considerations. You know, as you point out, if it's, if it's a six-mile move, it, you know, in, in coastal Louisiana, that might not be sufficient. In Houston, that's a, a huge difference, and that's you know a really significant one. And that idea that absolutely something as simple as grandfathering students in could enable that. I mean, I think that kind of localized thinking is really, really crucial in this conversation and often not something we pause to, to really consider. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, something that I, I also found running through your work that I wanted to touch on because I, I think it's just fascinating and I'm, I'm curious to hear if you have more to say about it is, uh, you know, uh, particularly uh, in your books, you, you do a huge number of interviews, you talk to people over years, and one of the things that kind of runs through both is a comment on folks who seem very aware that climate change is a reality, that climate is changing and yet don't necessarily recognize the risk that might represent for them and don't necessarily think of themselves as being entangled with that, at least at the flooding level. And so I'm, I'm curious if you want to talk about some of your experience just in, in these conversations, but also what that means for us as we, as we think about wherever we are, uh, how that affects us and, and how we need to be thinking about what a change in climate realistically means for the places we live in. I think that it's hard for humans to understand risk. Mm. And even people who had flooded twice in three years told me they didn't think they would flood again at the end of my project. And I really struggled to understand that. Yeah. But then again, it's 2023 and they haven't. So, you know, maybe they were right. But (laughs) um, I just, I think we tend to imagine that the next storm will be like the storm that happened before. Mm. And I think that impacts the way we think about our own personal risk going forward. I think the mothers in my book understood that it was a risk to stay in the neighborhood, but it was one they were willing to take because they wanted their kids in that place. Yeah, and I think the the fact that we benchmark to past storms is um, something we need to be having a lot more conversation about because we do say, well, if this house didn't flood during Harvey, then I can buy it and I'm probably safe. Not necessarily taking into account how a changing climate might make the next storm different from Harvey. Um, and so I think that too affects sort of how people are thinking about risk. I think with our um, folks, we heard a lot from them that they sort of understood that they still had some risk. You couldn't deny the risk because their homes had flooded in the past. And the change that they made wasn't one to say, like, okay, I have to get out, but instead to say, if it happens again, then I would really consider moving. So their their willingness to relocate does seem to sort of adjust to some extent. Now, Dean Kimbrough's book would suggest that people might be willing to stay through several, um, but I do think over time, 
people do, there is some element of change and sort of openness given repeated exposure to disaster. I also think that there's, um, I think there's more common ground in people's discussion about flood risk than there might be in people's discussion about climate change, or Mm -hmm. at least human activities role uh, in climate change. I found that to be really interesting. People with really different politics or really different perspectives could talk about flood risk in a sort of similar kind of shared way, even if they would react very differently to the language of climate change. Um, And so I think that's something we also need to be engaging with is finding that, that common ground and understanding how how we might see different flood risk over time and what kinds of decisions we want to be making as communities and as households in the face of that and try to sort of stay away from the political trigger words that are climate change and instead draw people together to the table to have real conversations about what we need to do locally. And to some extent, I mean, I think that brings us back to might feel like a bygone era these days, but, you know, all politics is local, right? And that we can perhaps have a more abstract idea of climate change and the global, but that really local focus on something like flooding in Houston really can allow people to to speak across these different issues from different perspectives. Dr. Elliott? No, I was just going to get back to the risk question, which is absolutely local, right? It's it's your community that you live in, but it's also your house, right? So Mm. even if you're unable to sort of think about about the climate risks and the complex modeling that goes in there, you will see a higher insurance bill, right? You mm. will begin to adjust your sort of concern level based on that. Um, and that was one of the things we were interested in pulling back and looking at this relocation. So we, again, we followed uh, almost 10,000 folks across the country who engaged in this FEMA buyout program. And we were really interested in as they move, were they just moving because it was time to move and they had the plan and this was, you know, the flood sort of accelerated that plan. That could be possible, but we were also thinking about regardless, were they reducing their risk? And so we got these household level address level um, flood factor scores from a foundation. And we were able to, to look at that question and we were, we were somewhat surprised because the risk messaging is getting in there, not just on where to move from, but where to move to. Mm. And what we found is that people were reducing their flood risk on average about 65% uh, through this. So again, through very local moves. So they aren't moving to some entirely new region. They are trying to figure out other places around their community where they can make this decision. But then we're in a game of musical chairs. How many, homes are there who gets to make that decision and we're back to the 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 toolkit and having a number of different options for folks well and as places change over time those flood patterns change as well you know at one point our 100 year floodplain 500 year floodplain made sense it doesn't anymore and that's changing rapidly and so we continue to build out into the exurbs and eat up flood retaining zones <laughs> around the city and it has a, a downstream influence which we've talked about pretty extensively in, in past episodes i mean i think that's that ongoing shift is something that we're going to have to continue grappling with i do think i, I want to highlight a statistic from uh, the kinder institute which is consistently found post harvey that a majority of houstonians support uh not allowing people to continue to remove and buy properties that have flooded multiple times and so i that's only post harvey that was not at all a majority of houstonians pre-harvey and so i think everything you're saying points to absolutely a kind of recognition that things are changing and, and that values are around these issues are changing as well um so i just bef- before i have to let you go i i, I do want to ask about what are some of the 
the solutions you'd like to highlight or steps that you think are necessary or things that you want us to be aware of for moving forward. We know disasters will continue to occur. We know this is going to be an ongoing certainly nationally and regionally, but globally, uh, an issue that we have to deal with. So as we think through this long future of disaster recovery, <laughs> I'm sorry, this has been a bit heavier than I, <laughs> I was expecting, but it is the disaster recovery episode. So uh, what are things we should do to go in more prepared and to be thinking strategically about what we can do to be better at this? I would say think about social institutions, Think mm. about schools, think about churches, synagogues, etc. Um, those are the things that people have ties to. How can we think about relocating those things as well or creating new versions of those things where people need to go? Right. I, that's fundamental. And Dr. Rhodes hit it on the head earlier, just extending the time horizon, right? Mm. We are moving to what they call the new abnormal. It is mm. not, are we going to have a new Harvey or another Harvey or Memorial Day flood. It, we are accelerating the trajectory on this. So we need to plan for 30, 50 years out in doing this. And we can do that. We've got the resources. We've got the know-how. We've got plenty of smart people in this city. Um, and so being able to think collectively on this, and maybe it starts with something fundamental, like rethinking how resources and communities are conceptualized. So one way might be to think about watersheds as a mm. basis of community and what happens in there and partnerships across otherwise sort of disparate neighborhoods that are part of that same sort of geologic or you know hydrologic sort of feature and, and begin to sort of resource those things. Uh, money is a great source of, of uh, commitment and, and glue, if you will, to pull people together and, and sort of sort through these things. I think that's the key, though. We have to be consistent in providing resources to actualize some of this planning to make it real. And this is where FEMA, at least in the blueprint, is trying to go further and think about needs uh, and metrics, not just in terms of need, but also thinking about outcome metrics. Can we begin to hit thresholds where we think together about which institutions we work with, how do we reduce flood risk, and actually shoot for some goals that you know we articulate and work together on. I think I'll talk a little bit about sort of thinking about it at the individual level. And so I think for, for all of us as Houstonians, like thinking through and paying attention to the, the risk to your home mm -hmm. and uh, paying attention to what resources are available to you in terms of insurance and things like that. Um, and, and taking those considerations with you to the ballot box as you think about who you want to represent you locally and how they're focused on trying to address these issues and incorporating that into the broader considerations you have as we sort of build out our you know local politics and think through what we're looking for well dr rhodes dr elliott dean kimbrough uh I, this has been so enlightening and informative um and an important difficult topic but i, I really appreciate your time and your thought on this and and some of this really invaluable discussion around how we continue to think about the places we live and what the, what the future holds for them so thank you so much for joining me yeah, thank, thank you, you. All right. So now we're going to go over to Jaden Bray Boyce, one of our researchers who has a segment this week on wildfires. So we'll be switching disaster topics over to a, to a related issue, but a, a different kind of disaster than we normally see in Houston. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well. Recently, I had the honor of speaking with the Consul General of the Republic of Cyprus concerning wildfires. From our discussion, I aim for all of you to gain a broader understanding of wildfires on a global scale. 
So without further delay, let's dive right into it. So wildfires are affecting countries worldwide, each with their own unique repercussions. However, for a small island such as Cyprus, how do these severe wildfires specifically affect the local communities? As you said, Cyprus is small, which means that the area is, is, is contained. It's also an island. So uh, we don't have wildfires like you, you, you had in the U.S. recently. But, but fires are a problem, and they're, they're, um, we've, we've had them for, for uh, at least 30 years now, uh, every, every season, like every summer season. Um, and it's getting worse because uh, we're experiencing a lot more dry seasons, which means not enough rain, which means that uh, uh, the, the type of trees that we have in Cyprus, like pine, are, uh, you know, if they don't get enough water during the year, they become even even more flammable than they normally are. And, and pine trees are, and you know that in the United States as well. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the slightest spark will just, just lights it up like it's a Zippo. It's, a, it's amazing. And um, so uh, it's been a, uh, it, it's, there, there are two things I can tell you about. One of them is that it's a problem that we are trying to tackle for at least 15 years now uh, regionally. In other words, there's a lot of support that goes to other countries nearby that have fires. Um, they had huge fires, for example, in Israel about six, seven years ago. Uh, and we sent firefighters, we sent aircraft. Uh, they came in from Italy, they came in from Greece, they came in from Egypt. Um, in Cyprus, we, we often get help from, from Israeli aircraft, uh, sometimes from Greece, depends on how bad the, the, the fires are. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. So there's a, there's a regional component to it. Uh, and the European Union has become a lot more involved in terms of financing certain um, reaction uh, capabilities but particularly Mediterranean countries. Uh, the, the other thing is, is you, you need to prepare the ground because some of, some of the areas are very difficult to access with, with uh, traditional means of like firefighting vehicles. So there's, uh, the, the mountains are full of, of, uh, of fire lanes that have two purposes really. One of them is to give greater access to the fire trucks but also to create uh, uh, buffers between the fires so they won't be able to spread from one side to the other. But, you know, we, we, this, uh, this summer, we, one fire that comes to mind, uh, apparently uh, it was a, an electrical uh, power uh, cable that broke uh, and sparked a, a fire, and it was a fire in a, in a forest that, we, that is pretty pristine. Uh, and uh, it was very difficult to get to it. We were lucky that we managed to contain it. Usually that happened by air, by, air, by means uh, aircraft, helicopters and stuff. But it's, you know, a lot of this depends on uh, introducing new technologies now. So there's a, there's a lot more drone technology being uh, introduced in, uh, uh, in uh, being able to detect quickly. Uh, there are... Um, um, uh, 
forest guards who, you know, they have they have positions in in uh, in, in top of hills and they they keep uh, they keep an eye on. But there's never enough people. There's a it, it, the whole system relies a lot on volunteers, uh, locals, uh, and they're doing a fantastic job. Um, but uh, you know, it's a it's a problem that we just feel it's it's only it's only getting worse. We need to buy more aircraft to be able to respond quicker. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, the situation. Expanding on this topic, this is a multi-part question, but how does Cyprus approach the process of asking for aid from other nations? I'm aware that Israel, Jordan, Greece, and Lebanon played a part in mitigating these wildfires. Did Cyprus make a formal request for assistance, or was this support offered voluntarily? Additionally, what are the ramifications of foreign countries stepping in to offer assistance in these circumstances? So, first of all, there's a there's a mechanism uh, which has been in place, uh, and essentially, you know, if if the particular country feels that they need extra help, they trigger the mechanism, and immediately, you know, it's it's been it's been done now for many years, so it's it's no longer um, people know what to do. It's not a, it's not a strange thing. Um, I mean, I remember the the uh, the really big fires in Israel. It was the first time that they had aircraft from other countries come in, and it's not a country that has well, that was used to having so many foreign uh, aircraft there. And it involves every country has its own security regulations. So, for example, in in Israel, you need to have a, a local pilot who Essentially, uh, he controls the radios. So he, he um, but it's pretty automatic now. Uh, so in uh, Cyprus is is obviously because of its location, it's it's there usually at least twelve hours before anybody else gets there, whether it's in Israel or in Egypt or in Jordan or in Lebanon or in Greece. Uh, well, Greece, of course, has uh, the advantage that it can also get people coming from by road that drive in from the Balkans. Um, so that's that to answer your question there there's a mechanism that is triggered. Usually uh, in most most cases it's the ministries of interior who deals with these things. They have uh, forestry or, or the ministries of agriculture depends and they just you know they, they have a, they, they have points of contact and they just you know call up and immediately there's a there's a response. Politics um, listen Things are getting a lot better, but I'll, give, I'll tell you the, the experience that we have in Cyprus. Um, often there are fires in the occupied north. Uh, and the, the, the Turkish military, for example, will not allow our people to go in there uh, to help out, uh, which, is an, which is an issue. There are times where the situation was so bad that they, they did acquiesce. So we managed to get usually firefighters as opposed to aircraft. Uh, we, on the other hand, are very uh, we're we're also uh, very careful about this because you know uh, sides try to take advantage of it to make political gains or political statements. Uh, so. Um, it's not an it's not an easy uh, thing to arrange, 
but I was, you know, I have to tell you, when I when I was uh, serving in uh, in the embassy in Israel, I was in one such occasion. I was I was very. This was back in I think 2016. It was uh, it was it was heartwarming to see that they, that, that Egypt had sent two two helicopters, that the Jordanians had sent aircraft. So you know things are uh, uh, things that normally weren't. Um, uh, were normal um, for many years now, even though there's been a peace agreement, uh, they're becoming more and more acceptable and uh, can be done in public. It is more than likely that nations around the world are grappling with these significant financial challenges as they allocate resources to combat wildfires. Therefore, if regions popular among tourists are combating wildfires, how does this affect the revenue from tourism? Cyprus, for instance, generated over $1.5 billion in tourism during a six-month period this year. And on average, tourism accounts for approximately 20% of the nation's GDP, according to the International Trade Administration. So that being said, what potential impact, if any, could this have on the overall economic situation of Cyprus? Well, we, we haven't had, we, we, as I said, we didn't have wildfires the way that you recently had, for example, in Greece. Uh, or in California, so um, the and, and the the vast majority of the tourist resorts are on the coast, uh, while the forests are on the mountains. So um, we haven't seen immediate impact. It doesn't mean we're not concerned about it. Um, it doesn't mean that because you know it's it's an ecosystem. You want to. You, you want to be able to to preserve the the, the ecosystem and and improve it and, and help it and uh, so so obviously you know if you're gonna have a huge fire you're gonna have a lot of smoke but uh, we haven't seen that impacting the the, the tourism uh, uh, the tr tourism sector um, tourism sector is usually impacted in Cyprus at least it's usually impacted by a bad economic situation in those countries where people come, or wars. Like if there's greater instability in the area, if there's, you know, if there, for example, in the in the Gulf Wars, you know, there was a drop in tourism for obvious reasons because people were scared to leave, etc. So, so we haven't we haven't uh, we haven't experienced uh, a climate uh, change impact on uh, tourism yet. Of course. You know, we, have, we we talk about fire, but the temperatures are rising. You know, we're having hotter summers, and uh, you know, you you have a lot more people who are um, susceptible to to heat stroke, to ulcers. So so that obviously has uh, has an impact, and we've also seen a, 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 a rising temperatures of the waters, so in the, in the sea, uh, which impacts. Uh, you know, it impacts uh, uh, fishing. It impacts uh, other life in the water. So it's a you know it's a it's a complicated uh, uh, it's it's a complicated situation to to balance. But as far as fires are concerned, yes, there's a cost, a growing cost. We need more means. We spend a lot of a lot of money on leasing helicopters, for example, to to uh, to be able to boost our our. Uh, Aircraft, uh, uh, our air power in terms of fighting firefighters, uh, uh, new vehicles, uh, you know, uh, uh, extra costs for for more firefighters. Uh, 
but uh, it's part part of the whole broader uh, civil defense type of uh, civil protection type of uh, measures. And so finally, is there something you believe is crucial for individuals to understand when it comes to the worldwide consequences of wildfires, including the impacts on the environment, society, and potential economic implications? Well, I think I think uh, the average person, first of all, needs to be a lot more uh, activated and a lot more um, sensitive to to this phenomenon. Because you know, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in New York City, and uh, recently there were there was a huge fire in, in Canada. Uh, it was about a, maybe a thousand miles from here, or, or maybe not so so much, maybe eight hundred miles from here. But the the the, the cloud was such that it you know uh, for three days. The, the northeast was was just uh, choked up, you know. Uh, so so we're we're not, you know. First of all, we're not immune to to any of this. I mean, you don't have to live near forested areas to to be uh, to be touched by by the implications of of uh, huge fires. Uh, secondly, uh, it seems to me that uh, the the awareness is uh, is. Uh, is, is important because the, the sooner uh, people, especially in such huge expanses like you have in North America, the sooner you're able to to alert the uh, the authorities, and the sooner they're able to to respond and contain the the blaze, uh, the better better it is for everyone. So people need to be aware of that. The third is the beyond the climate change, which is you know it's. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very big issue, but every single person has a certain responsibility when they go camping, for example, to make sure that, you know, if they light a fire, that they, that it's, uh, you know, it's uh, put out properly and uh, they make sure that there's no, there's, there are no burning coals under that. Um, you know, it's, it's something that initially a lot of the fires in Cyprus were the result of people barbecue or uh, farmers clearing uh, uh, um, dry, um, Weeds and uh, and uh, and leaves, etc., and all of a sudden you have a, a gust of wind and just sparks it on, and, and you have a big you have a big issue. So uh, it's important for people for, for the individual to know that uh, they they really need to secure uh, their little bit of uh, of the world from uh, from potential uh, bigger blaze. So first of all, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. And for all of you tuning in, I hope this discussion has piqued your interest about wildfires, particularly in the terms of their global effects and how countries collaborate to address this challenge to the best of their abilities. So thank you all for listening, and I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Um, before we head off, uh, we have Sienna Yen with a quick well, how to get involved around town and volunteering opportunities. Hey, everyone. This is Sienna coming to you with some upcoming opportunities to get involved. Splash Houston, or Stopping Plastics and Litter along shorelines in Houston, is having a beach park cleanup where they will be removing fishing line and other trash items that impact birds and sea turtles at Seawolf Park in Galveston on Saturday, November 18th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Parking is waived for all volunteers. To register for this park cleanup, head over to splash.tx.org. That's splash.tx.org. Don't forget to sign the digital waiver. If you want to learn more about Splash Houston or have any other questions about their cleanup events, visit their website or email them at splashtx at abcbirds.org. 
launched in 2020 through a powerful collaboration between the American Bird Conservancy, Gulf Coast Bird Observatory, and Black Cat GIS, SPLAS Houston is tackling the dual challenge of trash pollution and bird conservation in the greater Houston-Galveston region. Recent research has shed light on a serious issue. Texas is facing a trash pollution problem, and it's urgent. Did you know that trash accumulates on our Texas coast 10 times faster than it does in other Gulf states? According to a report from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and Ocean Conservancy, Texas has the highest average weight of trash debris per mile surveyed in the entire nation. Texas is home to 600 bird species, the second highest in the U.S. Unfortunately, our coastal ecosystems, crucial for their breeding habitat and migrations, are under threat. Whether it's a bird entangled in a plastic fishing line, a nest constructed with a discarded net, or a bird ingesting plastic, the trash on our coast presents a serious challenge for these creatures, and for all of us. So join Splash Houston at Seawolf Park this Saturday from 9am to 12pm and help make an impact. I hope you guys have a great and wonderful day. Thanks, Sienna. Up next time on Gulf Streams, we're talking with two officials from the city of Houston, Margaret Wallace-Brown, who's director of planning and development for the city, and David Fields, who is the city's chief transportation officer. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. Gulfstreams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies, with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski. Co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston. This is KPFT Houston.